Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today, our guest is uh, Tafoul Abu Hudeb, who is Associate Professor in History at the Department of Archaeology, Conservation, and History uh, at the University of Oslo. She previously taught at the University of Oxford and was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo and at the Europe in the Middle East, the Middle East in Europe, the latter a multidisciplinary research program based in Berlin. She received her PhD from the Committee on the History of Culture at the University of Chicago and her MA in Social Sciences from the University of Amsterdam. Uh, And her bachelor degree in architecture is from the American University of Beirut. She's the author of many journal articles, contributions to edited volumes, and a book, the subject of today's podcast, A Taste for Home, The Modern Middle Class in Ottoman Beirut, out 2017 from Stanford University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we always start with a bit of a biographical question, sort of what's your intellectual history in your own words? How did you come to write this book? How did you come to study the Middle East? Yes, uh, well, some of the interests in the study of the Middle East and that feed into the book, they go back to my time as an architecture student and as an architect in Beirut, because I studied at the American University of Beirut. And this was during the 90s. It was, uh, maybe still is, but it was at the time at least very multidisciplinary, so we were exposed and read such works as Pierre Bourdieu and Michel Foucault and Michel de Certeau. And this was also uh, right after the mid-90s, so right after the civil war in Lebanon ended. Uh, you know, it, it lasted 16 years and it ended in, in 91 or 90, depending on whom you ask. But there was this sort of exuberant generation, exuberant sort of feeling among my generation that anything was possible. And this reflected itself not only on on our education, but also on the city itself. And there was a reconstructing, reconstructing sort of process going on at the time, uh, which was accompanied by an incredible process of, of deconstruction or you know, buildings, entire neighborhoods sometimes would be, would be torn down overnight. And this um, raised a lot of debates about the value of preservation, a heritage, why, what to preserve, why to preserve it, does it have any historical value? So this sensitized me and many others to, to um, you know, the value of buildings, not just as uh, you know, superficial heritage, but also as uh, windows to the past. And so, um, and so during my graduate studies, first at the University of Amsterdam and then Chicago, I started to think about working with uh, a material archive, you know, with material culture, and using my uh, background as an architect to complement other sources on the modern period and on the late 19th, early 20th century uh, Middle East. And, um, and I also worked as an architect for one year between my master's and PhD. And that's when the idea of using homes as a material archive uh, took form because I was building sort of residential blocks at the time. Uh, so it was both an attempt to uh, counteract the disappearance of uh, old buildings, uh, you know, their complete disappearance, erasure completely from from the urban fabric and history, but also to underline 
their value for the writing of history, not least in the absence of an organized archive in, in, the, in the Lebanese case. And um, I mean, this happened at the same time that works uh, such as uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti's uh, Provincializing Europe came out, that's in, in 2000. And so um, as a doctoral uh, student at, at the University of Chicago, I was in the middle of all these discussions and, and it was a fantastic as- atmosphere. And here as well, it was very uh, multidisciplinary because of the nature of the program, uh, History of Culture, but also because of the University of Chicago itself. You know, it's uh, sort of well known for these multidisciplinary workshops uh, that take place outside of departments. And so, um, you know, so I had the chance to... Um, to work with, uh, to investigate the use of material culture across disciplines, you know, in art history, in anthropology, and also in Middle East history. And, and then when I started uh, doing research, uh, the project changed quite a bit because uh, I started to discover that there were all sorts of material, not just on the home, but also around the home. And so the project shifted to, rather than writing about the home, started shift to writing about a cultural history of the middle class home right so from uh, from that perspective to use a very much you know varied archive and to place the home in the context of global changes such as uh, urban reform ideals uh, and also the ottoman context uh, global trade and the emergence of a middle class in various places around the world so it was a, a, a process that was long in the, in the making, uh, basically, and sort of all these interests building and sedimenting upon each other uh, over uh, almost 20 years. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think you can see that through the book. The book is really multidisciplinary and takes, I mean, it's, it's not simply a history of, in many ways, it's a history of the city. You, you sort of feel the city and you, you get a sense of where things are. But um, in many ways, it's also very much, as you said, um, a history of the middle class, of what the domestic looks like. There's elements of gender history. It's, it's really quite an accomplishment, the way you strung it all together. Um, so sort of to set the stage, what led to the primacy of Beirut as a city in the late Ottoman period? Um, what did it look like by the time we get to your specific period? Right, well, something happened uh, in the history of Beirut, and it happened around the 1830s, which triggered a process, uh, you know, which made Beirut as a sort of historical place better known. But prior to that, it was a small uh, harbor town uh, with about 6,000 inhabitants, and it still existed mostly within its uh, medieval walls, which had already begun to crumble at the time. Uh, but then several overlapping factors happened, and maybe, I mean, there's some, sort of something contingent about all of them happening at the same time. But at the heart of this is also uh, something that comes with the Industrial Revolution and the industrialization of specific uh, nations, such as Great Britain and, uh, and France, and the quest for new markets and raw material that comes with that. And so the accompanying changes in, in global trade patterns that makes uh, port cities into important nodes in this global network of trade. And the fact that Beirut was not important at the time, uh, I mean, sort of counterintuitively, is the reason why it became important. And that's because um, local merchants in Beirut, they defied attempts at monopoly that were trying to be, that the ruler of, of Acre or Akka was trying to, uh, to impose of them earlier that century. 
And um, and this absence, you know, having successfully defied monopoly and this absence of a of a clear political authority was was fertile ground for a new kind of mercantile class to emerge at precisely that time. And this is not my argument. This is uh, historian Thomas Phillips' argument. Uh, but interestingly enough, even in the 1830s, despite that change, there were still uh, lots of discussions among European uh, diplomats and merchants in the region in what is going to be the main uh, port city on the eastern Mediterranean seaboard in the, in the global trade network. And, uh, for example, uh, the French, for example, regarded Tripoli and Sidon as more natural ports than Beirut and were pretty denigrating of Beirut's uh, sort of natural disposition to become port city. And then what happens is that Muhammad Ali Pasha, who was a ruler in, in Egypt, uh, sort of Ottoman vassal, but had developed his own autonomy and has his own modernization project. He rebelled against the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul and occupied Syria for a brief period of time from about uh, from 1831 to 1840. And by Syria here, I mean geographical Syria, right? So approximately today's um, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and, and Jordan. And, uh, and what happened during that period is that uh, Muhammad Ali Basha opened up the area more for international trade. And among the many things that he did was to uh, introduce quarantine, so in Beirut. And so the choice of Beirut was quite important for, for the city uh, to have quarantine based there or just outside the city because it forced all vessels heading for the eastern Mediterranean seaboard to dock first at Beirut in order to uh, undergo quarantine, especially at times of epidemics. And uh, although this not, was not always strictly followed, but it did contribute to Beirut's prominence. And what helped was that precisely at that time, from the 1830s onwards, uh, there was renewed British interest in Syria as a market and source of, of raw materials. So this again reinforced uh, Beirut's role as main Ottoman seaboard. And so it started this dynamic, you know, this sort of overlap of uh, uh, global transformation uh, in addition to the Ottoman politics, regional factors and local, uh, local merchants. So basically, this created circumstances for Beirut, which later became regarded as, as natural, the fact that it had a port, the fact it was linked uh, through a carriage road, later a railway, sort of reinforced that central pro- place that Beirut had as port city. Uh, and so by the period, by the time we get to the period I look at, which is from around the 1870s to World War I, Beirut is already main port city on the eastern Mediterranean uh, uh, seaboard. It has a well-established uh, mercantile class of many confessions, but especially uh, Greek Orthodox uh, and uh, Sunni Muslim, which were the two largest uh, sort of confessional groups in the city at the time. And uh, they played, you know, they fulfilled the role in, as uh, in reinforcing Beirut's role as, as Anthropos by linking on the one hand Beirut to international trade, but also Beirut to the hinterland, the Syrian hinterland. But also Beirut is becoming an important cultural center at the time. Uh, together with Cairo and Alexandria, they become hubs for newspapers, periodicals, and other publications. And last but not least, you, saw the, you see also the beginning of a middle class starting to take form, which is what I go into in the book. And so by World War I, the population is already around 150,000, uh, which might not seem much by today's standards, and there was population growth uh, all over the region, but 
the fact that it went f- you know in under a century from six thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand, which is sort of twenty five times as many inhabitants, is quite uh, significant and not quite common in the region. So, as you mentioned a moment ago, the books um, the book's principal actors are the middle class. So, how do we find the term middle class in the context of both late Ottoman Beirut but also global capitalism? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question because there's been there there had been for some time some resistance against using the term middle class in this context, not least in Beirut, where people talk about divisions along you know Muslims and Christians, and they had very different char- characteristics. But also for some very conceptual reasons, it's it's uh, there are several ways of defining class, uh, you know, and there's no consensus exactly on how to do it. Uh, and the way that I proceed in the book is by by looking at a combination of both uh, socioeconomic position and uh, lifestyle choices. So you have new kinds of professions emerging in the 19th century, which are linked uh, to state building and Ottoman reforms, but also to Beirut's changing position. You have employees in new institutions, uh, Ottoman institutions like the postal office, customs, um, you have bureaucrats, a class of bureaucrats, you had professionals such as bankers, lawyers, teachers. You had, uh, sorry, uh, doctors, but you also had teachers in an expanding educational system. And there were journalists in an expanding press and small-scale manufacturers. And what all these people had in common was that they regarded, a lot of them regarded themselves as modern and were very invested in Beirut's newfound confidence and with access to new possibilities of consumption that the city provided. And these processes are not unique to Beirut or, or the Ottoman Empire because they're happening worldwide uh, under different circumstances, but also related to, to state formation processes, processes and to higher uh, levels of literacy and education. And the fact that you had also denser uh, means of communication across the globe also meant that uh, you know, the middle class in different parts of the globe was, were drawing inspiration on each other. And it's also fruitful to place the middle class in the context of uh, uh, global capitalism, particularly through consumption. And, and this is where the work of Pierre Bourdieu becomes useful because, uh, because um, uh, I mean, the, the way he defines class makes it possible to think about uh, class through consumption patterns and not necessarily through the relation to the modes of production, which is the sort of the classical Marxist way of thinking about it. And so it's, possible to think about these structural changes and how they become apparent in consumption. Right? So there are two things that are important here. The first is what one chooses to consume, but you know, they signal a class position. So uh, you know, I consume this, therefore I belong to the middle class. Uh, but the other is that by looking at who had access to what and when also helps to nuance our understanding of class in terms of, of how it manifested itself on the level of, of everyday life. And here again, this is relevant in the absence of uh, more accurate data on, for example, income brackets, living conditions, and other statistics. But I think finally, and this is um, important, is that that these people themselves refer to themselves as middle class, right? So the self-definition also plays a role here. And in this instance, in Beirut, people started calling themselves uh, those of middling means, which is a term already in use in a narrow context, but it gets redefined during that period to place that group in relation to other strata of society as well as uh, globally. Domesticity functions as a category of analysis in the book. Um, 
it's sort of, as you mentioned, it's sort of another sense of how we can define this middle class. And I was wondering specifically how it intersects with the idea of the home. Where is there, where is there an absence of this overlap between the two, in fact, also? Yeah, so domesticity is a, is a, as I use it, is a constellation of ideas and lifestyles in which the home uh, played a crucial part, uh, both as a concept and material object. But uh, it, it goes beyond the home in that it, it ties discourses um, that were only indirectly related to the home. So, uh, so it opens up understanding the home to wider impulses that we that we associate with with the nahda or or sort of the intellectual production of. Uh, in, in Arabic in the late Ottoman period, and so uh, it's it's an attempt to look at at the, at, at the home uh, as part and parcel of this wider intellectual atmosphere. But also, in addition, it's through through looking at it as as domesticity, it also becomes possible to tie in transformations in in global capitalism uh, and how it transformed both the way domesticity was thought of and and lived through consumption. But also through labor, and I, I discuss how labor, both local, regional, as well as industrial, fed into uh, popular objects of consumption, and how that challenged and upset ideas about about the home that intellectuals uh, put forth. And this tension between the two is also a central theme in the book. So when we think of when we think of women, um, when we think of, sorry, when we think of domesticity, we often think of women because of um, preconceived notions of what a woman's role should be historically, but also due to the way we're socialized, unfortunately. Um, and I was wondering, how do you feel that domesticity in this period, in this setting, um, and later on in Beirut, um, articulates ideas about the role of women in society? Uh, yeah, well, here it's interesting to look both at sort of uh, common similarities between Beirut and other places, but also at, at differences. And in terms of similarities, there are themes that you find among the middle class and other places of the globe. Uh, women is responsible for the home's management, for the upbringing of, of future citizens. And, and for that, women need to be educated uh, because in order to raise future citizens, they had to know how to do it. And, um, and, so, uh, and so the home becomes doubly important in that context, both as a child's first school, but also as a mirror of society because it becomes... Uh, both the home and women's position become a litmus test of how modern a society is. But more specifically in the case uh, of Beirut, we see uh, women were seen as, as the entry point of uh, what, is, what was referred to as a fringy fashion, so uh, meaning European or Western fashion. And so they held the responsibility for maintaining a sense of authenticity against what was regarded as Westernization. Uh, and so, and so, as many men and women writing in the press expressed themselves at the time, women's job was to parallel the more generalized modern changes that were taking place outside the home, uh, in the city and on the streets, with a more localized modernity inside the home that maintained a sense of identity in the face of more homogeneous changes. But it's also interesting that although women were were the uh, object of uh, debate uh, around the home. Uh, they also were active uh, subjects. They also participated actively in the debate. And, and actually, and this is, this is very interesting, because uh, the home constituted the point of entry for women in the, into the public sphere, into the public debate. So um, before they started writing and holding lectures on other topics, they started 
uh, writing in the press and holding lectures at cultural societies on the topic of the home and the women's position in, in relation to that. I'm glad you mentioned sort of um, the tension between what's seen as authentic, but what's also seen as imported. And as, as you mentioned, the word Ferengi is used. Um, and I was wondering what this looks like materially for your, your subjects in late Ottoman Beirut. Uh, what do you mean in terms of um, the uh, objects themselves? Yeah, sort of how are people creating a material culture that incorporates both elements? Uh, yeah, so, I mean... You can think of taste, so what was this, what were the preferences in consumption, but also also in terms of what was being produced for consumption, what was being imported. Uh, I could talk a little bit about that. Uh, because it's, uh, I mean, we're looking at a period when taste is becoming uh, uh, global, it's being shaped globally. And often when we talk about uh, the late Ottoman Empire, uh, when it comes to, for example, consumption, there's a lot of talk about how European imports undercut local labor but if if one looks closely, the, the, the picture is very much more, more nuanced. So I'm, I'm, there are several examples, but I'll take one of them, which is the example of, of textiles, because textiles were a large area of import to Beirut, and it made its way into so many aspects of everyday life. You know, it was used in upholstery, bedding, clothes, uh, curtains. And the interesting thing is that a lot of textiles were imported from Europe, and they were marketed as English textiles or Frenji, so meaning European textiles. Uh, but they were actually referred to by their manufacturers as Oriental textiles. And, and this is interesting because this comes at a time when, when, uh, when world fairs in, in Europe, as well as the United States, were packaging the exotic into a marketable commodity, like the Oriental was something to be marketed. And so a lot of these industrially produced textiles found expression uh, inspiration in products uh, of the East, and and uh, you know experts from European factories would come and study the models and copy them, sometimes down to the standard sizes, and then they would produce them uh, industrially, and then re and then export them to the region as products that were marketed as Oriental or Arab. Right, so so they would end up uh, undercutting or competing with the very products that inspired them local regional production. Right? And there are other examples uh, also here in the book which, uh, which show, for example, how, how things that were marketed as local manufacture actually imported, uh, incorporated imported raw material and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so in, in other words, you have, like if you bring the question of, of labor uh, into consumption, and, and the question of production to consumption it shows how popular tastes and popular objects uh, blurred this line between local and imported, and that there were chains of production involved that extended across continents and and uh, you know interweaved industrial with local labor in, in in inseparable ways. And so the the important thing to note here is that even as taste became an object to be molded and defined by the middle class, something else was happening at the same time, which is that taste was being uh, there were sort of global conditions of production uh, that that formed certain tastes, which made which made it very difficult for you know the middle class to have a very uh, consistent definition of what was right and proper taste. And so, and so again, this is the kind of tension that I was talking about earlier. I'm glad that you mentioned taste because it's sort of one of the two linchpins of the book. Um, 
uh, a taste for home, as you very cleverly refer to it in your title. Um, so I was wondering how, just to return to the sort of urban history aspect of the book, how is how are taste and consumption affecting urban expansion um, and uh, in Ogden Beirut? Uh, yeah, this is... Uh... Uh, this is a very interesting question because, of course, you see a lot happening uh, uh, visibly. So, like uh, one of the most visible manifestations of of uh, these shifts was uh, the sight of horse-drawn carriages um, on the city streets on the days off that the day that the city had days off. So that was basically Fridays and Sundays, and they'd be headed for parks which were located on the outskirts of the cities. And these parks, a lot of them, were new. And were linked with new kinds of leisure that was emerging that were emerging at the time, and they were uh, referred to as muntazahat, which is a word that comes from the Arabic for promenade or outing, and so they do, it does evoke a lot of this uh, idea of the flaneur, and for good reason because that's where a lot of people, uh, both men and women, went to exhibit the newest fashions. So they would stroll about in the newest imported fashions, uh, and sort of uh, show them off to to other people who frequented the park. And so that's um, that's a way that uh, sort of leisure and taste influence the public sphere. Uh, but you also, of course, have an influence on private leisure inside the home. And I, there's one one example that I really like, which is the phonograph, uh, which became also popular in Beirut, uh, especially after 1900. And it was uh, affordable for those members of the middle class who wanted to invest in a phonograph. And it was interested. It is interesting because it was also coupled with the growth of uh, of a record industry, both domestically in Beirut and also regionally, uh, in the early twentieth century. And so, phonographs brought in a, a form of leisure that was previously associated only with the wealthy classes, which is having uh, someone perform it at your home. Uh, and and they were basically played through the phonograph, and this would uh, shape a certain mode of of socialization around them. Uh, and there was even a record exchange program in Beirut at the time, which was advertised in the press, offering a chance for people who owned phonographs to replace their old uh, worn-out records with new ones for a very affordable price. And of course, last but not least, you have the uh, the souks, which uh, I should not forget to mention because it's a very important uh, uh, feature of of the um, of the urban fabric, and that's also a phenomenon of the 19th century. You have these souks that emerge in the city. Uh, which are uh, different from the older kinds of uh, commercial places because they are rectilinear and uh, cross at right angles. But at the same time, they express a lot this new form of consumption, uh, which, um, uh, you know, and, and, and the popularization of tastes that was taking place at the time. I think, again, as, as this is a book that focuses on class, one thing one can't help but think is, is the issue of social mobility. So, how does social mobility fit into this consumer culture that you're um, that you drew very vividly in the book, and um, how much of this is based on growing class distinctions and changing class distinctions? Mm. Um, yeah, well, from at least from the point of view of of the middle class, it's it's interesting that it wasn't just about what one consumed, but how one consumed it. Uh, and this was tied to class distinctions in the sense that it was an attempt to distinguish the middle class from the other classes. And I'll come back to this in a point. But um, 
But uh, the idea is that there were certain ways of doing things that needed to be cultivated. And one had to learn, uh, for example, what what themes were proper uh, for, for photographs to be hung on the walls, to decorate the walls. So it wasn't enough, for example, to be able to afford an imported uh, chair produced in Vienna, but it was also important to know how to set them up properly around the room. And it's also tied to issues of proper behavior. So not only were you had, you had to learn how to sit on a chair, but also how to sit properly and how to conduct proper conversation during a visit. And so one of the things that was frowned upon um, in, in the press was the shisha, the hookah, or the hubbly-bubbly, that people invite others to come and sit, and they just sit facing them in a chair, blowing smoke in their faces. And that was sort of uh, the opposite of proper sociability and behavior. But what is interesting here when it comes to, to class distinction is that a lot of the criticism of how not to behave was actually directed at the upper classes, not the lower classes which is an interesting twist uh, on the work done by uh, Pierre Bourdieu on distinction, for example, where he says that the middle class defines itself according to the class below it. And one can speculate about why this is different in the case of Beirut. But uh, one possible explanation is that by introducing cultivated ways of, of doing things that went together with a good education and they also went together with knowing the ways of the world was, uh, was a way for members of the middle class to break through the social hierarchy. Uh, locally through their own sort of so- sociocultural project. I really like the example of the hookah, uh, mostly because to my mind, that's what actually defines the middle class today <laughs> in the Middle East. And also it's so commonplace. It's, it's maybe not even just the, the middle class. It's a very ubiquitous sort of social gathering. And there's a whole, I don't want to call it a ritual, but everyone sets it up. Often children are involved in setting it up because no adult wants to set up themselves and clean it. So I think that's a really great example. I also really appreciate your comment about sort of how it um, pushes back against the upper class because I work on these newspapers and I think a lot of the newspapers that you've worked on and you can tell that it's very much based on that there's a sense of we are educated, we um which, which is a distinction from the upper class, in fact, because this is the class, the middle class is the class that's becoming professionalized. These are the doctors, these are the engineers, these are the intellectuals. So that's actually another aspect of the book I really appreciate, is how you wove in intellectual histories and treated the press very delicately. And, and it, was, it was wonderful. Um, speaking of which, I was wondering, again, this book is so, it touches on so many different aspects of uh, Middle Eastern history, material culture, um, cultural history, social history, economic history, how did how did you assemble your archive, and what sort of sources specifically do you put in this archive? Yeah, uh, quite a bit. I mean, I, I can start by saying that the way the whole book is structured by looking at three fields of investigation around the home: changing urbanity, public debates, and consumption patterns. Right, so these three areas, and so you have so many archives that I've tried to use to to complement each other because it's really difficult to get an accurate sense of what was going on at the time. So I've looked at uh, like minutes of the municipal counter, uh, council in Beirut, as well as Hanafi court records and the press in order to understand what was happening on the urban level. And then in order to understand uh, public debates on domesticity, I use basically newspapers, periodicals, and other publications. And then when it comes to consumption patterns, which is where, where a lot of the putting together of the archives took place. I looked at several things, including uh, consular reports, 
from uh, London, Paris, and Nantes. I looked at city guides, published city guides of Beirut, trade catalogs, including uh, you know from the Victoria and Albert Museum in, uh, uh, in London, the National Art Library, and uh, photographs, uh, as well as advertisements in the press and extant homes. Right, so it was by trying to piece all these things together and read them against each other uh, that basically the the uh, the picture that you see came forth. So, so this is uh, basically a project that's involved research in Istanbul, in in uh, Paris, in London, in Nantes, and of course, last but not least, in in Beirut. It's quite an extensive project, uh, and I'm sure that you were told repeatedly that this is an ambitious undertaking. It really paid off. Um, so congratulations on the book. I'm glad it did. I wasn't <laughs> sure it was going to. <laughs> no, it was a wonderful contribution to this growing uh, sort of, uh, there are many growing fields again that you intersect with. Um, histories of Beirut, urban histories of the Middle East. So congratulations on this. And I sort of wanted to close the interview by asking, um, what are you working on right now? Um, well, it's just another uh, a new project which is in its very early stages. But I'm I'm looking at Palestinian folklore in the 20th century, uh, trying to to draw the threads from beginning from the Mandate period up to 1982, basically, and looking at first the emergence of folklore as a field of study in the interwar period, uh, but also tracing many of its threads to understand how it became woven into a Palestinian national identity in the 60s and 70s. And, and how it manifested itself on, on several levels, uh, you know, institutions such as research institutions, cultural institutions, as well as the PLO's um, uh, labor project for, Palestine, uh, for Palestinian labor in Lebanon, uh, up to 1982, basically. So some of the questions that I'm thinking about is, uh, what is it that is included in the folklore canon and why? What is it that is left out? And how that can help us understand not only Palestinian nationalism, but but also I think this is a more interesting question: the formation of Palestinian society, uh, both at home and in, and in exile. And so here too, uh, material culture stands central in trying to nuance the archive and what has been the work that has been done so far. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic project, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Thank you so much for having me. 